HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on heritageradionetwork.org. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Peter Gethers, author of My Mother's Kitchen, Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner, and the Meaning of Life. Welcome, Peter. Well, thank you. Very happy to be here. Oh, I'm so delighted. I read your book when it I came... I you did. <laughs> I read your book when it came out in 2017, but it's just come out in paperback. I encourage yeah. all listeners to read this very heartfelt memoir. Peter, how did... Uh- how did the this idea? This is already my favorite interview that I've ever given, by the way. So I'll get that out. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, good, good. That's good. Uh, let's see if it goes downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how did the idea begin? Well, it was a fairly simple idea when it started, and it went through various permutations. Um, basically, my mother, which I can explain in a little bit, had a an extraordinarily vital and important life and life in food. Yes. And basically when she turned 90, which was three years before she died, which is now five years ago, mm-hmm. um, I realized that once she, in middle age, in her 50s, began a career in food, my entire life changed as a result of it. Not just her life, but Mm -hmm. my life, her husband's life, my brother's life, all our friends' lives. Mm -hmm. And for me in particular, I realized that from the time I was early in my early 20s, which is when she became the queen of the food world, Mm -hmm. um, every single thing and every single decision I've made that had any import 
completely revolved around food and drink. <laughs> and all your decisions. I, I bought a house in the middle of nowhere in Sicily because it was on the grounds of the best restaurant in Sicily. Okay. My, my I, I as a profession. I do all sorts of complicated things in addition to writing books. I produce television and write uh, books and and write television and film. And I I wound up producing food shows and editing cookbooks, Mm -hmm. among other things. Mm -hmm. My longtime girlfriend uh, is the top food literary agent in New York. Oh, cool. So, So things... Are food relevant for me? Uh-huh. And when my mom turned 90, I realized I knew a lot about what she had done or thought I did. It turned out I didn't know quite as much as I thought, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what foods were really important to her. And by that time, my mom had had a massive and severe stroke, mm-hmm. which is a big part of the story because her recovery and response to that was genuinely extraordinary and inspiring. Mm-hmm. So I realized I wanted to find out what foods were important to her because I realized I didn't know that. I knew that food was important to her, but I didn't know what foods or why. Mm-hmm. So I began talking to her and found out what dishes were meaningful to her and found out that food wasn't just about taste, although taste was crucial to my mother, especially after the stroke, because it was one of her senses that survived fully. Oh, great. But but that food had a history and an emotional connection to things in the past. So some recipes were not the most difficult to make and were not the absolute best tasting, but they resonated with her and were important to her because they were connected to my dad or Mm -hmm. my childhood Mm -hmm. or her life in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So I began to really think that food had a different meaning than I had thought. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just food. It wasn't just food, that food actually was meaningful in a life situation Mm -hmm. and not just on the table. And then I decided, well, I can cook. I I was not and am not a great cook, but I'm not horrible. But I I mean, I was not capable of many things that my mother was capable of. But I decided I would put together her fantasy breakfast, lunch, and dinner menus, and I would learn to cook everything. Mm -hmm. Because she couldn't any longer, correct? She could not. That's correct. She could not cook. She could criticize. Yeah, right. She, she could did. eat, she could criticize. She, she, she could, could eat taste. her taste her taste was completely unimpaired. Oh good. But because of the stroke she couldn't really cook anymore, but she could instruct and teach and mm-hmm. and truly the the taste of food became ever more important to her. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a year really talking to her about food, which led to talking about her life, which led to my learning how to cook things, some of which were so simple, Mm -hmm. uh, such as matzo brai, which as I say in my book, uh, a monkey can actually make that. It's Mm -hmm. totally easy. To something that was the first recipe that Wolfgang Puck ever taught my mother to make because she wound up working with Wolf, Mm -hmm. which is something called the salmon kulubiak, which I describe in the book took me two days and about three quarters of a bottle of bourbon to make properly. (laughs) 
Well, that's great. That so is that's just really that's great. the conceit of the book. Is it's it's really what I learned about my mother's life, mm-hmm. how extraordinary it was, and how it's perceived through food. All of which I learned how to cook and give mm-hmm. the recipes to, and describe my semi hapless attempts to make right, them. Right, and you must be a much better cook now. I am, partly because I learned how to do certain things and right. how to think about food. Right. Some of those fancy recipes taught you different techniques that you could then apply to different food. uh, True. And I did. I took a knife skills class and miraculously, I still have all my digits. (laughs) Um, But um, more important than the skills, because I quite honestly, I, I don't have the patience to get those skills the way a real chef Mm -hmm. does. Mm -hmm. But I learned a certain kind of fearlessness in the kitchen, which I think is more important than knowing exactly how to cut things. Or or I I learned to trust my instincts. And sometimes that winds up being messy, just Mm -hmm. like in life. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it winds up being even more delicious Mm -hmm. than the original recipe, Mm -hmm. just like in real life. Right. But you also probably aren't scared by many recipes that you would have been scared of before. No, I I would I'm not saying I would succeed, but I would try <laughs> to make anything. Right. And and in fact, my probably in my one of my two or three favorite parts of the book, my favorite difficult thing in the book, as I said, I've gotten to work with food, so I I have gotten to work with a, a guy I think is a genius, Yotam Adolengi. Mhm. And um I sent him an email saying that one of the things my mother picked for dinner was quail. Mm-hmm. And my mother, when I was a child, she's the only person I ever knew who made quail or squab or little birds like that. And mm-hmm. So I, I said to him, we had quail at your restaurant in London at Nopi. My mother, by this point, didn't have a favorite particular recipe, but I said, that was the most delicious bird I've ever tasted. Mm-hmm. It was quail and rhubarb sauce, mm-hmm. and so and I was terrified of cooking with rhubarb also because I don't even know how to peel it or anything. And mm-hmm. so I said, "Could you send me the recipe?" And he did with a note, which I re- repeated or reprinted exactly in my book. Uh, he said, "I don't know how much good this will do you." He goes, "I'm not sure I could even cook from this, but <laughs> here are my notes on that recipe. Some of it." Are, is for four people at my kitchen, and some of his, some of it is for a hundred people at the restaurant. So, <laughs> so good luck. And it was all, and and there was no explanation. So there were things like use this ingredient to make the licorice dirt. And I, and I, and I didn't want to bother him anymore. So I, I didn't want to email him back and say things like, "What the heck is licorice dirt?" But I went, "Well, it's licorice and." dirt so i can maybe i can figure out what it kind of what it is and so i is licorice related to rhubarb perhaps i don't know but it but you he used licorice and of course i i I didn't even know what kind of licorice so i bought like licorice candy figuring how bad could it be (laughs) and and in fact it all turned out 
superb. It was absolutely delicious. I suspect it was nothing like what I actually ate at his restaurant in London. Right. But it was unbelievably good, although it was... <laughs> I think I lost 10 pounds trying to figure it out. <laughs> half of also I have no patience uh and and I'm bad at reading recipes cuz I get creative and after a mm-hmm. while I just go I'll just do something, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to be precise and accurate. So some of his measurements were not in ounces. You know, <laughs> they were they were in other forms of, of <laughs> measurements. And I just went, all right, well, this is about an ounce. Okay, right. I'll figure this, you know. But uh-huh. it turned out great. And we went, okay, no reason to be afraid <laughs> of making something where I don't even know what I'm making. Right, right. So your mom, Judy Gethers, came yep. from a very strong food stock. Her family yeah. <laughs> owned the famous Jewish dairy restaurant Ratner's. Yeah. And tell our younger uh, listeners who may not recognize what what Ratner's was, tell them about about Ratner's. Well, I will say for people probably over the age of 50, mm-hmm. it, if you say, and I did, I've done a lot of publicity for the hardcover tour and I went around the country and I would talk because the first part of the book is a lot about Ratner's mm-hmm. and the history of that restaurant. And I would sometimes be speaking in front of hundreds of people, and I would say, well, my mother was the daughter of the man who founded Ratner's Restaurant, and Mm -hmm. from the bowels of the audience, probably literally, you would just hear people be going, mmm, those onion rolls, mmm, the cheesecake. (laughs) So Ratner's was this, probably in its heyday, it was in existence almost 100 years. Mm -hmm. So for probably... 60 or 70 of those years, it was probably the most famous Jewish dairy restaurant in the world. Mm -hmm. Wherever you went, if you said Ratner's, if you were in Paris at Mm -hmm. the fanciest restaurant and you're talking to the chef and you mentioned Ratner's and he would flip out because Mm -hmm. it was so such an incredible place. It was not a deli, as many people think. It was on, it it wound up for many years. Its second location was on Delancey Street. on the Lower East Side, it was a non-meat restaurant. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it was actually at the forefront of creating vegetarian cooking, Mm. um, which I Mm. didn't realize until really much, much, much later, really recently in doing my research, or as they were were cooking the things before it was a cuisine. It was just food and then it but they really were important in developing non-meat cooking Mm -hmm. now i can't say it was healthy cooking (laughs) no i say in the book (laughs) that you know there was a reasonable chance that halfway through a meal at ratner's you could actually feel your arteries starting to harden Mm -hmm. but it was incredibly delicious it was a crazy crazy place with very eccentric waiters and Mm -hmm a very eccentric Lower East Side personnel. But it was around for close to 100 years, and it was truly legendary. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather started it. My mother never worked there, but the rest of her siblings, most of her siblings did. She had Mm -hmm. many, and quite a few of them did. Mm -hmm. I worked there once for a summer. Mm -hmm. Um, 
doing something completely unnecessary, which was they, they gave me a fake job because I was a family member. So I was sort of the maitre d', which is a way too fancy term for what I did, <laughs> is I would try to seat people at the tables, except mm-hmm. anyone who went to Ratner's always sat at the same table and wouldn't pay any attention <laughs> to me whatsoever. There were many a day where I would say, yes, right this way, sir, and turn around and walk all the way to the back of the restaurant and then turn around and realize he had sat at the first table that was available and that was paying no attention to me. But the culture really shaped my mother. And in fact, her first cookbook, first of many, before she was really was in the food business, was she did a Ratner's cookbook. Right. which, in fact, I'm trying to put back into print now because oh, it's cool. such a classic, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's Rosh Hashanah today. Exactly. So that's even more perfect. Yes, exactly right. Yes, yes. Uh, anyway, so then, uh, kind of late in life, in her at 53, in yes. 1975, Judy goes to work uh, at a very different restaurant in well, L.A., Ma yes. Maison. Can what you happened? tell us, can you describe that restaurant and the way your mother ended up working there? Well, it was funny because, again, her background was Ratner's, which, again, I can't stress how delicious it was, but I can't stress <laughs> how not a sophisticated restaurant it was. Right. And my parents moved to Los Angeles because my father was a television writer and and producer and ultimately director. And the business, the TV business had left New York and gone to LA and he resisted it for a long time. But finally we moved out there. I was a young boy. And over those, my teenage years, they became more sophisticated and they were hanging out with a kind of show business crowd. Mm-hmm. As an example, my father the reason we moved out there was my father was hired to write and produce a television sitcom called The Bing Crosby Show, mm-hmm. which coincidentally starred Bing Crosby. <laughs> and my So my he was very, up there. He was for, he he was the, you know, Frank Sinatra and the Beatles right, of his day right, and he was right, now right. older and right. doing his first television show. Mm-hmm. And it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um he was for my very first and again the older audience will truly swoon <laughs> for my very first holiday out there my parents had a holiday party in December and Bing Crosby came and sat at the piano and played and sang White Christmas uh. which was you know his signature song and of course I thought at age 10 or 11 well, he probably just goes around to people's houses and sings this all the time. I had no idea that it was something extraordinary. But so my mother, my father loved to entertain. He loved to have people over for dinner. Mm-hmm. My mother became a much better cook, mm-hmm. and they started to have dinner parties, and she became seriously interested in food. Mm-hmm. So this new restaurant, Ma Maison, opened up in the mid-'70s. Mm-hmm. And they were became regulars. My dad loved going to restaurants and having them, you know, make a fuss over him. He was mm-hmm. he was that kind of guy. <laughs> and um, you know, he loved knowing the waiters and getting his table. And you know, he just liked it. Right. And and my mother liked it mostly because it was 
the first truly great restaurant in L.A., and she mm-hmm. loved the food. Mm-hmm. She could take all the fuss, but she mm-hmm. loved all the food. And the and baby chef, is the baby Wolfgang chef at that Puck. restaurant was Wolfgang Puck, his first right. restaurant. Right. And I happened to be there. I made my first trip back home. from. I had moved to New York. I went back to Los Angeles to see my parents over the holidays. My mother took me to Mommy's Own for the first time. And the owner came over and sat with us at lunch. And my mom innocently said, so what should I do to become a very good French cook? And she meant something dilettantish, like, should I go to Paris for three mm-hmm. weeks or mm-hmm. what, blah, blah, blah. Right. And he said, come to work in the kitchen for a year, work three nights a week. We won't pay you. You will be our total servant. And at the end of a year, you'll be a really good French chef. <laughs> and much to my shock, my mother went in without blinking, okay. <laughs> and even more to everybody's shock, rather than my father saying, what? Who's going to make me dinner? My father went, that's fantastic. It's great. You're going to have a whole new life. I right, love it. Right. And, and, you know, they'd already been married for 25 years, 20 uh-huh two years at the time or something. And um, she went to work there. And within a year, she wasn't just a good French chef and cook. She opened up their cooking school and Mm -hmm. she was cooking alongside and teaching alongside Julia Child and Mm -hmm. people like that. And she wound up, that became her life. And Mm -hmm. she wound up writing eight cookbooks. And It's a great uh, story. And she really started in her mid-50s. And what was so interesting, and I write about this a lot in my mother's kitchen, she was being mentored in the kitchen by the greatest chefs, particularly California chefs of Of that generation. Wolfgang Puck, Nancy Silverton, Jonathan Waxman, and they were all babies in a way. Right. They right, she so was the, the experienced woman and, in the kitchen. And, and she became, they mentored her in the kitchen, but she, she wound mentored up mentoring them. In them. Life. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And she suddenly became a whole new person because mm-hmm. my father had sort of been the dominant personality in our family. He was a big, outgoing personality. Mm-hmm. And suddenly my mother went, well, you know what? I'm really smart, and I have the answers to these questions, and I have really interesting anecdotes to tell these young chefs. Mm-hmm. And and she became the mother to all of them, really. Right. And they were all going through sexual identity problems or marital problems or professional problems, and she became their counsel. Okay. And it was extraordinary to watch. Peter, we have to take a break. It's time for our break. Uh, I want to recognize our departing big cheese engineer at HRN, David Tadashore. He, oh, I've never said it out loud, and that's not good. But uh, we will be back with Peter Gethers discussing his book, My Mother's Kitchen. See you soon.
Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk combined with expertise and affinage is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. I forgot to mention that David is leaving HRN. That's why I wanted to mention him before the break. Goodbye, David. We wish you well. We'll miss you a lot. Anyway, Peter, we're back. Hi. So let's talk a little about your dad. You also followed a bit in his footsteps. And I, my f- I did. I combined both their careers. Yes. My favorite dad story in the book uh, was when you sent the very serious letter to him about sleeping with your girlfriend <laughs> in his home when yeah. you were quite young. His answer was a newly... a. a uh, nicely and largely (laughs) drawn middle finger saying, received your letter, love dad. Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, it actually said it was, it was on his notepad. It said from the desk of Stephen Gathers. Yes. And it said, dear Pete, and in it was a perfectly traced, raised middle finger. Yes. And then it just said, love dad. And I had written him the most pretentious. I was 21 years oh, old. Oh, 21. You know? So only as a 21-year-old <laughs> could do. I wrote him the most obnoxious, pretentious, self-satisfied, smug letter explaining right. why he, he was needed old to and let you his sleep. His values were yeah, old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and and of course, I was waiting for him to pay for me to come back to L.A. Right. ostensibly to see them, but actually see the girlfriend. Right. And I dropped the letter in the mailbox and then realized what I had done and panicked. And I called two or three days later saying, so um, did Dad get the letter I sent? And, <laughs> and, and my mother was saying, no, not yet. And then finally one day I called and I said, hi, Mom, did Dad get the letter? And she said, yes. I'll put your father on the phone like that. And I, my blood ran cold and I begged him to tell me his response. And he said, you'll see it when you receive it. And I got that note. And of course, it was perfect because it just it put me in my place and made me feel right. so pretentious. And right. finally, I called him and said, OK, I got your note. I get it. And he said, would you like a real response? And I said, yes. And he said, you will understand this. He said, you're going to be in my house, and I'm too old to live by someone else's rules, and it would make me uncomfortable. You're welcome to bring her for dinner, and we'll see you as much as you want because we love you, but that's not happening. And I went, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. You know, I apologize. I'm an idiot. And I love that he signed it, Love Dad. Like, yeah, of you know, he was mad, but he wasn't that mad. No, you know, he wasn't even <laughs> mad. It was so funny. He He was just 
okay, my son's 20 and 21 years old. He's an idiot. Right, 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 right. And then he just, he knew exactly how to put me in my place. Right. Another good part of your father's story is that when, after your mother's career in the L.A. food scene booms, he loves being called Mr. Judy Gethers. Yes, he which definitely Which is so did. wonderful. Well, my mom, really, you know, my dad was very successful. Yes. And, and again, it's hard to describe, but he had a big personality and mm-hmm. people really liked him. But, but, you know, he was very sarcastic and uh, he just was a big guy in all ways. And my mother was not. She was very quiet and meek. And in fact, it was only really after my father died, and I wrote about this extensively, that I realized my mother was the one with the spine in the family. She was made of steel. (laughs) It's just that she was so quiet about it. And my father was so robust, you Mm -hmm. know, but... But my mother was in many ways much stronger, really, as a person than my father, which she proved after he died and when she went through all the things she went through as she got older. And um, she suddenly was a star in the food world, and everybody loved her, and they loved being able to pay my dad back for making fun of them for so many years. (laughs) So anytime he went into a restaurant, they would say, yes, we have a reservation for Mr. Judy Yethers. (laughs) And my dad liked it, you know, he was Uh, so proud. (laughs) That's great. Now, we are on a cheese show, so cutting the curd. So let's talk about you and your mom's favorite cheese. Well, you know, one thing I was going to do that I was unable to do for this book, I just sort of ran out of time, Mm -hmm. but I found a fantastic... uh, cheesemaker in Tuscany, and I mm-hmm. was going to go work there and learn how to make cheese. Oh, and, you and know it, that half our listeners do that. I didn't know that. Well, we all want to go make cheese. Yes. Well, <laughs> we all want to make cheese, and I almost went and did it. I was going to live in this crummy trailer, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they were going to teach me, but I just it wound up not fitting in with the book. Mm-hmm. And so my mother's favorite cheese of all time was this Burgundian French cheese called a poisse. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if your listeners have tasted it. Oh, we all have. It's quite <laughs> potent. Yes. And, and, and it's sort of fainting cheese. Mm-hmm. But my mother just loved it, as did I. Mm-hmm. And I still can remember, there, I, I, I'm going to make my life sound really glamorous, but honestly, it's not nearly this glamorous. But I did, I was able to spend a year living in the south of France, mm-hmm. and my mother came and visited. And we took her to this little restaurant in Burgundy. We were living farther south, but we took her to this restaurant in Burgundy, and I still remember they had a... You know, the steak, kind of steak frit steak, the really thin steak. And, mm-hmm. and it said steak with a poisse. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, they'll put a little, like a pat of butter size of a poisse on it. It was a huge steak, and the entire plate, entire steak was covered with melted a poisse cheese. 
<laughs> and it was, I still dream about it, actually. <laughs> I do notice one of your quotes in the book is, I might go so far to say a poise is the best single food I can think of. Yes, I think it's manna. From, I think it's manna from heaven. My mother's favorite. She she loved that cheese, and I really do. Th- if I had to only eat one thing, it probably would be that with mm-hmm. bread. Mm-hmm. That combined with the dessert wine Chateau Ikem was my mother's idea of perfection. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me a little bit about your mother's health challenges in later life? And that she could still eat a poisse with bread after her stroke. This is really and truly what made me write the book is that when she was in her mid-80s, 85 or 86, Mm -hmm. my mother had a massive stroke. And Mm -hmm. she'd already led this extraordinary life and had three different lives up till then and had outlived my father by quite a long time and written books and traveled the world. She was kind of anti-mame-like in mm-hmm, a way, mm-hmm. if, if that means anything to the listeners. <laughs> and um, I'm, They're really young. Dat- I'm dating <laughs> myself here, but um, she had a stroke. And the day of the stroke, I was in the emergency room with her and the doctor came out and said, we think your mother is going to have locked-in syndrome which means she will never be able to talk or move again. Again, The stroke hit the dead center of her brain, and not to get gruesome about it, but we didn't find her for 16 hours. So so if... I don't remember that from the book. That's that's an estimate that that we think she had. And normally, if you you don't find someone within an hour or two hours... Right, it's bad news. They don't make the recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he said, she's never going to be able to speak or move again. She'll, have, she'll be locked in. Mm-hmm. And 24 hours after that, I went to see her. And my mother had an incredible sense of humor. That was one of the things that really kept her going. My dad did too, but my mother's was very, very deep. And um, so there she was. And she she looked as if, I have to say, she died already. I've never seen anyone look as terrible as this. Mm-hmm. And so I walked in and I looked her into her hospital room and I said like, hey, mom, looking good. And gave her the <laughs> thumbs up. And this woman who wasn't really supposed to move ever again at this point, right. she gathered up her strength and she crooked her finger, like come closer, mm-hmm. her left finger, because her right side she was paralyzed for a while, not mm-hmm. for too long, but, mm-hmm. and she crooked her left finger and I'm suddenly going, wait, I thought she couldn't move. <laughs> and she indicated that I should lean close. And I did. And then she said, and by the way, she was not supposed to be able to talk ever again either. Right. She just said to me, don't be such a wise ass. <laughs> and Oh, you and, must have been so happy. Well, it was so shocking. And plus... You know, I was just, I was crying and sad and depressed, and then I'm laughing hysterically. Mm-hmm. And literally two weeks after that, she was moved to a rehab place where she ha- it was so severe. She didn't just have to relearn how to walk and eat and talk. She had to learn how to swallow because mm, she couldn't even yeah. swallow properly. Yeah. And... Um, and six weeks after that, we 
I took her with my best friend, who's who'd known my mother since he was a little boy. We picked her up and took her out of the rehab place and took her to a holiday party that our friends uh, had every year. Every year that mm-hmm. my mother loved. And she insisted on going, and she walked into the party. She wouldn't be wheeled in in her wheelchair. She insisted <laughs> on walking in with help. And then I, about a week or two weeks after that, she was back home in her apartment. Yeah. So it was. Now, what did the was, surgeon tell you? I mean, didn't he? Isn't one of your surgeons a very uh, great guy who told you something about your mother's recovery? Well, he's not a surgeon, but he's he's one of the great. Um, I'm losing. Sorry, I lost the word. You know, gerontologist. Oh, he's okay. One the, okay. He's he's one of the great gerontologists mm-hmm. in the country, and he he said a few things. First, he said that when my mother made her recovery, he said, you know, he 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 goes through this with a lot of elderly people. Their mm-hmm. lives become mm-hmm. diminished to a right. degree, mm-hmm. and he said, one, your mother's recovery is not. Just in the, it's not in the top two percent. It's in the top two people recovering <laughs> I've ever seen. And he said, you know, people get depressed because their lives are diminished. And my mother's life was definitely diminished, mm-hmm. although she refused to buckle in. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I've talked to your mother at great length. I, I thought I'd, I should give her an antidepressant. And he said she won't take one. And I've talked to her for hours and hours. And he goes. She's not depressed. I've mm-hmm. never seen anyone not get depressed when this happens. And mm-hmm. he said she just decided, okay, here's what happened. I'll cope with it. I'll move on. I'll, have I'll a embrace. Life. I'll embrace what good. I can. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And she did. And mm-hmm. I write about this in the book. The thing that actually drove me crazy, really, when she was ninety. I would call her up and say, "Mom, I just heard about a great new restaurant. It opened a week ago." You know, the, the new Tom Colicchio restaurant. And I mm-hmm. said, a friend told me about it. If I can get reservations, do you want me to take you Saturday night? And she'd go, been there. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and, of course, being still just as obnoxious and horrible as I was when I was 21, I'm thinking to myself, she's an elderly stroke victim. She can't possibly have been to a restaurant. And I'd say, no, Mom, this restaurant just opened up a week ago. And she'd go... I've been there. I went there Wednesday night. And I go, Mom, you're a 90-year-old stroke victim. How can you possibly be beating me to going to all these new restaurants? And she would just laugh and beam and go, been there. What can I tell you? How did she get there? Who took her? A friend. And uh-huh. she, she was very close with her niece, my uh-huh. cousin. Uh-huh. And they used to go out all a lot. And my mother still knew everybody in the restaurant business. And Beth would call them and say, Judy Gethers wants to come wants in. Wants to come, and they'd, come say, and they'd say, yay, yay. Yeah, so <laughs> she hit every new restaurant. I could never beat her to a new restaurant. It drove me crazy. Oh, I don't blame you. <laughs> That's so annoying. It, <sighs> and and what, you know, so then the thing that was truly extraordinary about my mom is you thought, okay, that's the end of the story. That's going to be the most inspiring act, which was really act four. But in fact, it wasn't because something else happened in the last couple of years of her life that really, that really was crazy. Um, What happened? um, When she was right after her 93rd birthday, Mm. 
um, she came out. I have a house in Sag Harbor in Long Island, and mm-hmm. she came out there, and we had a big celebration. Um, she came back to the city, and I was actually, I remember this so distinctly, I was at a movie, and I came back, and I'm in a cab. I live downtown, and the cab is two or three blocks from my apartment in the village, and my cell phone rings, and it's the woman from the the agency that provided the AIDS, the live-in AIDS from my mom, which mm-hmm. she needed after her stroke. Mm-hmm. By the way, women who, I, I don't know how people do this for a living. They were saints and mm-hmm. they were miraculous. Mm-hmm. And the head of the agency said, Peter, we we think we have to rush your mother to the emergency room because, and I won't remember now the exact name of the test, but a type of blood test. She'd been given a test and normal was supposed to be one and three was high and my mother was 13. (laughs) So they said, this is, we think this is life threatening. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, look, but I have to, I need to think about this for five minutes because my concern was my mom and my mom had made it very clear to me that she did not want to die in a hospital. Okay. That that was Mm -hmm. the most important thing to her Mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. She was crazed about it. Uh-huh. But I but I understood it. Mm-hmm. And so she so I said I need 5 minutes to think about it and I got home, cab dropped me off and I paced around my apartment for 2 minutes and mm-hmm. hugged my cat, you know, for solace and uh the phone rings again and it says we we had to rush her to the hospital. She started bleeding profusely mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we just had to do it. So I rushed back uptown and my mother looks at even worse than she did when she had her stroke. I've never mm-hmm. seen anyone look mm-hmm. like this. And my mother had an incredible pain tolerance, mm-hmm. some, something I have not inherited. Mm-hmm. You know, I go to the hospital if I have a splinter. <laughs> and she just had extraordinary tolerance for pain. And she said she was in pain. And for my mother to say she was in pain. Must you know, have been like big. Big. Yeah. And she could barely move. And I thought, oh, my God, this is it. I talked to the palliative care people, and they were incredibly supportive. And I said, look, this story is not going where you think it's going. I told you this has a crazy, upbeat ending. Okay, good, um, good. <laughs> I, I, um, they said, look, we think your mother has two days to a week to live. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, she doesn't want to be here. So they said, we'll get her home. We're just going to get the the blood count thing that was 13, we we can get rid of it in a couple of hours with intravenous mm-hmm. um, liquids. And as soon as that's done, you can take her home and we'll provide home care mm-hmm. hospice. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she really has two days to two to weeks live. to live. Okay. By one o'clock in the afternoon, my mother's home. She kind of wakes up. She's been in a daze, and she realizes she's home. And she looks at me, and she's confused. And she, and and my mother, I told you, she had a great sense of humor, but she also was extraordinarily honest. Mm-hmm. She 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 demanded honesty on all levels, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons we had such a great relationship. And she could talk about anything. And um, so I said, "Mom, look, you said you didn't want to die in the hospital. This is the end game." Mm-hmm. And I brought you home and you're you're going to have drugs, whatever you need. You're going to be totally comfortable. But I brought you home. And she, I said, I hope that's all right. And she said, that's wonderful. And 
I settled in, and over the next week, she was very weak and not mm-hmm. really able to talk or move mm-hmm. very much. And all my friends came by to say goodbye, and we all went, okay, this is it. Mm-hmm. And all I can tell you is three weeks after that, my mother went out for a pastrami sandwich at a restaurant, <laughs> ate the entire thing. She came to our Thanksgiving dinner as a surprise. There was there was really people came by to say goodbye to her because she used to come to our Thanksgiving every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And my best friend's wife, who also had known her since she was young, called my mother and said, I'm so said, I'm not going to see you at Thanksgiving dinner tonight. I can't believe you're not going to be there. And my mother said, oh, me too. I'll really miss you. But she had already plotted out a surprise <laughs> visit. And she came, was, came in the door in her wheelchair for Thanksgiving. And my friend's wife just rushed up to her and said, you stinker. How could you do that to me? I never saw my mother so happy that she had pulled off this major joke. But literally, she was out three weeks after they told me she couldn't eat anything but ice chips uh-huh. and that she would have two weeks to live tops, probably right. two days. Right. Her aide called me up and said, you're not going to believe this. Your mother insisted on going out to her favorite deli to get a pastrami sandwich. <laughs> and I went, what? What? That's... And I went up to see her, and she was fine. Oh, and gosh. that's the same doctor who had told me. Right. Such longevity. He he came over and I said, I thought you told me she couldn't eat and right. there was this. And he said, what your mother is doing is actually impossible. I want you to understand that. It's not humanly possible. And he said, but it's your mother. So. Right, right. How and long she, after she that? Another, she lived for another several months. Okay. Um, I, she died, actually. So this was in... October, November, mm-hmm. and she died on February 1st, mm-hmm. and really up until the last 24 hours, she was going to the table for breakfast and lunch, <laughs> and she was enjoying herself, mm-hmm. and um, she was going out for, as she put it, not she would say, I'm going out for a walk, and then she would say, well, I'm going out for a ride, because she was <laughs> in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. um, and I had had a dry January Mm-hmm. I decided I wasn't going to drink for the entire month of January. Mm-hmm. And my mother, and I can't say this is really conscious, but I wouldn't be shocked. She died on February 1st. So <laughs> I was able to drink very heavily that night. So oh. it was her last act of mercy for me. <laughs> well, this is just a wonderful story. I love your book. I love your Thank mother. You. I, I, uh, It's been great interviewing you, and I want to thank you for coming on Cutting the Curd. Thank you so much. Anytime you want. It's a great show, and I'm thrilled. Okay. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.